Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word but by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and is given to us in love. Thanks so much, Batch and Holly, uh, for leading us in prayer uh, and in our scripture reading. We are uh, continuing this morning, uh, as you noticed in the reading, a series uh, that we've been in uh, through this summer uh, in the book of 1 Peter, a letter written uh, by the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' first disciples and a leader in the early church, uh, to churches uh, in the Roman Empire, particularly in the area of Asia Minor, roughly modern-day Turkey. I remember seeing a cartoon, I believe it was in Christianity Today not long ago, Um, that featured a pastor in his pulpit, and around the pulpit, he had built a fortress for himself. He had built bricks and sandbags, and he looked out a little slit in the front of his pulpit fortress and said, my text today is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, wives be subject to your husbands. This is a a difficult passage, Uh, perhaps uh, maybe one of the few uh, benefits to preaching this way by distance, as I can be spared the expense of building a fortress. But uh, this is a tough passage. Uh, it's tough exegetically. Uh, exegesis simply means the, uh, the way that we read and interpret uh, the language of Scripture, so it's difficult. There's a few things in here that are tough to sort out exegetically. It's difficult culturally uh, because we are a world removed culturally from Peter's first audience. It was difficult for them culturally uh, for very different reasons than it's difficult for us culturally. And we're going to have to do some work to understand how we receive this passage. And then it's difficult personally. Right? All of us have probably heard when those other exegetical and cultural allowances aren't made, when these uh, verses are mishandled, that it can be a difficult text personally. It can be used to justify uh, and give biblical warrant. Uh, to abusive practices in marriage or misogynistic practices 
in the world. And so we want to walk through uh, this difficult passage. Let me say a few preliminary things to help set our orientation uh, for this diff difficult passage, just three things. Uh, the first is that we believe that even the hard parts of the Bible are good for us. Right? The Bible isn't um, all the stories that we hear and know as children and remember. Uh, right? It's not all easy reading. Uh, but we do believe that it's all good for us in keeping with what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed, it's spoken by God, and it's profitable to us. Sometimes the Bible is good for us like a delicious meal. It's, it tastes good on first taste, and then it's good and nourishing for our body. Other times the, gospel, uh, the, the Bible is good for us like a bitter medicine. It may taste difficult, it may be tough on the first exposure, but it's still necessary uh, for us to ingest it to live a healthy life. So even the hard parts of the Bible are good for us. Secondly, I want to say that this passage is not primarily about marriage, although we're going to see that it has a lot of implications for marriage. But this passage isn't primarily about marriage, it's primarily about mission. We find it in this larger section of 1 Peter where he's talking, uh, where he's writing to these early Christians and talking to them about the way that they're to live their life among their pagan neighbors, among their neighbors who do not yet believe what they believe. Remember, every single Christian uh, likely to receive this letter was a first generation Christian. They had come to Christ as adults. They had come to Christ uh, and into his church while immersed in this world that believed very, very differently than they did. Most of them came from pagan or Greek and Roman uh, belief systems and now come into the church. And this is a section where Peter, having told them who they are, their new identity in Christ, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is a section where he's been talking to them about how then they live within their relationships in the non-believing world, how they live as subjects uh, under a non-believing emperor, how they live as servants of non-believing masters, or we might say, uh, to translate it into our own day, as, as workers under non-believing bosses. And now here, he begins to talk about uh, maybe the most difficult of all of these situations. When you find yourself the spouse of a non-believing husband or wife, how do you live out your faith when your faith is different than the faith of that most intimate relationship? And so this is primarily, though it's going to have implications for marriage, it's primarily about your mission as a Christian uh, towards your spouse and if believing with your spouse in the world. And then thirdly, marriage is vital. Marriage is vital in our world and in our lives. Now, in Christ, marriage, human marriage, isn't ultimate. Right? The early church and the epistles of Peter and Paul chart out singleness as a viable calling in the Christian life. Paul goes so far as to say that he wishes all people were single like he was single. Right? So singleness is one potential calling and venue where we work out what it means to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus. But for those married among us, marriage is vital. Marriage is key to your experience of life and your working out of your discipleship. Think of it this way. Uh, if everything else in your life is going well, 
if you're advancing in your career, if your health is good, if your checking account is growing and you're building savings and you love your neighborhood, if everything else in your life is going well, but your marriage is struggling, your marriage is bitter and toxic, then you, your focus won't be on all the many things that are going well. You'll be miserable because that most intimate and vital relationship is miserable. And on the other hand, even if everything else around you is going poorly, your health is failing and you're unnoticed and not, not moving forward in your job, everything else can be, can be crumbling around you. But if your marriage is strong and intimate and vital, then your inner emotional life will be good and strong. You'll be moving out into a difficult world from a place of fullness and strength. So marriage is vital and it's worth our attention. It's the reason why it is so deeply addressed uh, in all of the New Testament because they recognize its vitality. So let's go. Let's look uh, at these verses in 1 Peter. The main point that we're going to see in these verses, the overall takeaway that I want you to leave these verses with is this. Your marriage is about revealing Jesus. Jesus is the point of your marriage, just as he's the point of every other part of your life, if you've given your life to him as a disciple. And so your marriage is primarily about revealing Jesus to your spouse, and with your spouse, revealing Jesus to the world. You'll notice that twice in our passage, first in verse 1, and then when he switches gears in verse 7, Peter uses the word likewise, or in the same way. And so this is a part of a trail of argument that, he, that he's been making about government, about servants and masters, about living in a pagan world. And he keeps referring back to his main point in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. He's saying the point of your life as a Christian in the midst of a pluralistic, non-believing world is that by your life you would reveal God in such a way that your neighbors give him glory. He goes on to say that the primary way that Christians reveal God is in revealing Jesus. Right, Jesus for the Christians sets our our imagination, and our knowledge of who God is and what he's like. Peter says in chapter 2, verse 21, For this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So the way that the Christian reveals God is by revealing the servant-oriented love of Jesus to our neighbors. And now he says that the main context in which you reveal the love of God and Jesus to your neighbors is through that closest of neighbors. Through, if you're married, your husband or your wife. He calls them to reveal Jesus to their spouse. He calls us, if married in a Christian marriage, to reveal Jesus together to the world. And so we're going to look at how we do that. We're going to look at how Peter points uh, these wives and husbands, even in difficult mixed marriages of believer and not yet believer, to reveal Jesus. We're going to see how he calls us to reveal the faithfulness of Jesus' commitment, 
the beauty of Jesus' character and the depth of Jesus' love. First marriage is designed to reveal the faithfulness, the faithfulness of Jesus' commitment. He urges wives to start with. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. That these wives of husbands who, as Peter says, do not believe the word, do not believe the gospel, might reveal Jesus to their non-believing husbands through their humble commitment, their faithful commitment, to working out their life with Jesus, with their husband. We need to understand some things about the, the situation of first century Roman wives, which would have been uh, very, very different than the cultural expectations that we live with as husbands and wives. And there's two main ways that being a Christian of a non-believing husband would have placed stress or pressure on a first century Roman wife. You see, Roman wives of this period, two things were expected of them that, that affected them. The first is that a wife was fully expected to adopt the religion of her husband. That she was expected to worship her husband's God or her husband's gods in this situation. So that if two people got married and they were devoted to different gods within the Roman pantheon, that the wife would let go of her religion, let go of her gods and adopt her husband's religion. Secondly, a wife was encouraged to not have friendship or social relations outside of her husband. To not have friends who she didn't know primarily through her husband's friendship with. And so if that's what's expected of you to be a good wife in the Roman world, and all of a sudden your life is changed through an encounter with Jesus, if you find yourself coming into that new creation that Peter has talked about as being born again into a living hope, all of a sudden you find yourself breaking with two of these major expectations that your husband and the surrounding culture would have had of you. First, you're no longer able to worship as God. Right? Remember, Christianity, uh, then and now, doesn't come to us as an add-on to our other beliefs, to our other gods. Right? It wasn't like she could continue to worship uh, the God of her husband and just add Jesus alongside of it. It would have involved a renunciation of her husband's God. And so you've broken one of those social commandments that would have been expected of. And you find yourself breaking another because now you find yourself in a social world within the church that's marked by these intimate relationships where the church is referring to one another, not just as friends, but as brothers and sisters, as fathers and mothers, right? So you find yourself in this entirely new social world that your husband is not a part of with you. And so... A Roman woman who's come to new life in Christ would have found herself within this incredible tension between what her husband expected, what her culture expected, and what this new life was leading her into. This is one of the reasons, we talked about this a little bit last week, 
why one of the major pushes of early Christian apologetics, apologetics is, uh, is not apologizing, it's simply making the case for Christianity to your non-believing neighbor. And one of the major uh, pushes of Christian apologists, both in the Bible and then immediately after, is to argue for the, to the Romans that becoming a Christian didn't mean that you couldn't fulfill your cultural obligations. That to be a Christian didn't mean you could no longer be a good Roman citizen. It didn't mean you could no longer be a good employee or servant or master. It didn't mean that you couldn't be a good husband or wife or child. In fact, they're going to argue over and over again that being a Christian actually makes you a better Roman. Right? There's going to be elements of Roman culture that's going to be critiqued. There's going to be things that Romans did and do that the Christians were not going to be able to do. But they're going to argue over and over again that being a Christian makes you more loyal, more loving, more courageous, more virtuous than you could have been without. That Christianity enters into the social order. And though it critiques parts of it, it ultimately acts as a preservative and a life-giving effect within culture. Remember last week we talked about Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, saying that this church was meant to be salt and light in the world, giving life to the cultures of this world. And so, to these newly believing women who find themselves in marriages with husbands who don't believe, Peter says, wives, be subject to your husbands. So that even if they don't obey the word, they might be one without a word. So he urges them to be subject to their husband, to continue to fulfill the expectation that their husband would have had of them. Now, ultimately, we know that this, this submission, this, this humble, mutual submission of marriage is not ultimate. Right? He's not saying, well, there's two things that he's not saying. One, he doesn't say women be subject to men. Right? He doesn't say women be subject to the men that you meet in the workplace, out on the sidewalk, wherever you may find them. Men are, more, are, are above women. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, be subject to your own husband, to one man. And then he says that this submission isn't ultimate. How do, he doesn't say that explicitly, but he said you've already shown that you're not subject to your husband's faith or his expectations of you in regards to your faith or your church involvement, right? That, that his, your loyalty to your husband doesn't trump your own existence, your own conscience, your own opinion, your own life as a new follower of Jesus. It doesn't trump your, the importance of you being a member of the community of Jesus. But what he's saying is that in, a, in this world where you're already being looked at skeptically for these countercultural ways that you've broken with your husband, don't then make your break with your husband complete. Everybody was already going to be looking at you saying, Christian women no longer are good wives. They don't love and serve within the context of marriage. And so Peter's saying, no, no. No, the new creation reality of marriage doesn't nullify the... I'm sorry, let me say that again. The new creation reality of your life in Christ, your salvation, doesn't trump or cancel the creation ordinance of marriage. Right? Marriage is a good of creation. Christians celebrate and champion marriage, not just for Christians, but for all people. That marriage between husband and wife and then bringing up children in the context 
of that home is a creational good. It's a good for people and for society and for the creation. It's one of the ways that, that God intended the world to be built. And so Peter's saying, look, you don't break that creational building block simply because you're now a believer and your husband doesn't believe. Don't leave your marriage. This squares with Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians. Don't leave your marriage. Don't wander off from your marriage, but continue to live in the tension of your primary loyalty being to Jesus and your covenantal loyalty being to your husband or to your wife. Continue to submit to one another. Continue to lay down your lives for one another. Wives to husbands and husbands to wives. The marital vow remains binding. And in this way, marriage reveals something about Jesus. It reveals something about the depth and the tenacity of his commitment. The very vows that we take in marriage mean that the marital vow is not broken by sin and unbelief. That the commitment we make to one another in marriage is one that commits to loving one another, even when the other doesn't believe or believes weakly, even when the other sins, even, even when the other sins against us. Now, Jesus and Paul in the New Testament do qualify that, right? That instances of adultery and abuse and abandonment, that those very sins do break the marital vow. But the reality of marriage is the reality of loving someone who sins against you, loving someone whose unbelief affects you, even if it's not to the level that these early Christians faced, where one spouse believed and the other didn't. My unbelief affects my wife. My sin affects my wife. And marriage demonstrates a commitment to love and to service and to giving our lives to one another, even in the face of unbelief and sin. I believe that's what's going on when Peter then points to the example of Sarah. Think about uh, the adventures that Sarah and Abraham went on together. And think about the ways that Abraham was faithless in his marriage and in following God. Remember, there were twice, not just once, but there were two instances where Abraham, feeling, uh, fearing for his life, asked Sarah to lie and to say she was his sister so that people didn't kill her. And through that, Sarah knew what it was to be married to someone whose unbelief affected her. She knew what it was to be married to a man whose foolishness affected her. She knew what it was like to be married to someone who the Bible does hold up as an example of faith, but who was very much a mixed bag, who sinned against God and against Sarah. And yet, her bond was to him, his husband and wife. And so Peter calls, calls us to live exemplary lives so that even if some of our spouses do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, by the conduct of their husbands, when they see respectful and pure conduct. Right? We all know this to be true in our lives, that sometimes the life speaks louder than the word. This is especially true 
um, when everything that can be said has been said. Right? I think these words make the most sense if you, if you assume that a new believer, having come into faith, would have tried to tell her spouse about it, would have urged or loved and, and longed for her spouse to enter into this new covenant life. And yet, there comes a moment when every, every argument's been made, all the words that can be said have been said. And what's left is a life that models the love and faithfulness of Jesus in the hope that that life then leads them, as he said earlier, to glorifying God. So a marriage reveals the faithfulness of Jesus' commitment. Secondly, it reveals the beauty of Jesus' character. Look at what he says, verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This seems to be the logic that's going on with Peter here. He said, look, you've already left your husband's religion. You're now going out and going to the gatherings of these other, this other religion, the church. When you go out in public, the world is already going to be looking at you sideways. They're already, we know that the, the, one of the attacks that the pagans made against the Christians was the assumption that these meetings they had, calling each other brother and sister and family, that these meetings were actually uh, something more like orgies, right? That they were rooted in sexual immorality. And so Peter says, look, don't make it worse. When you go out, dress modestly. Adorn yourself not uh, with the external trappings of cultural beauty, but adorn yourself with an inner beauty that works from the inside out in order to further silence your critics in this way. Make it clear to all that this, this new family of faith, you're not going out seeking the attention of others, certainly not of other men. One of the things that seems to be happening here is that Peter is discipling these men and women, here these women in particular, uh, from the cultural world that they were born into, of Greco-Roman culture, and into the new world of Christianity, particularly uh, the standards and teachings of the Old Testament. The Greeks and Romans and the Hebrews uh, had two very different conceptions of beauty. And Peter here seems to be arguing that they should step away from the Greco-Roman ideals of beauty and move into the Old Testament Hebrew ideals of beauty. When the Greeks and the Romans thought about beauty, they thought about beauty as uh, striving to attain an ideal, right? That there was this ideal of beauty that was out there, that women worked uh, to try to, to earn up to so that their lived experience, their formal life in the body, would come to attain to the formal standard of ideal life. So that beauty was was this ideal standard that they were always trying to live up to, even if never quite getting to. Whereas in the Old Testament, the Hebrew standard of beauty is quite different than that. It's not about attaining to a standard, but rather a wholeness. Beauty was equated with a a wholeness, marked by righteousness with God, union with Him, leading to a transformed character that then pushed out from the inside 
to the hour. And Peter is saying, let your life be marked by this inner beauty that radiates upward. And friends, I believe we need this now. In so many ways, the lives of women have improved dramatically uh, in the last 50 or 60 years. Certainly have improved dramatically over the last 2,000 years. Uh, since the, the audience that Peter wrote. And yet, if you ask the question, do women today live with less pressure, less expectation uh, than they did back then? While the contours of that expectation may have changed, I believe that our culture still places a deep pressure on women to live under that Greco-Roman notion of beauty, attaining to this ideal standard that remains forever out of reach. As women have had more opportunities opened up to them in the world, so too, I think, we see the opening up of more pressure. The pressure not only to keep a perfect home, to maintain a perfect figure, to maintain perfect beauty, to live a life of perfect health, to be the perfect mom, the perfect wife, the perfect employee or boss, to work hard, maybe to have a side business as well, all to have this Instagram-worthy life. I believe that, that the women in our culture, every bit as much as the women in Peter's culture, are tempted into a kind of a performative femininity that says that my beauty is measured by everyone in the world, that everyone out there has a right to judge and evaluate me, and that I will find my meaning as I meet their expectations. That femininity is lived out before a world of evaluating. And yet, what does Peter say here? Verse 4. The imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. There's one sight that matters. Uh, the sight of God. And what he looks for is different than what the world looks for. What he looks for is the cultivation of a Christ-like beauty. This word gentle here is used only two other times in the New Testament. Once it's used by Jesus of himself. In Matthew 11, when he says, Take my yoke upon, me, upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Gentleness isn't a puny character attribute. It is, a, it is a, the attribute of Christ. The attribute of Christ that makes a relationship with him life-giving and restful. The other place that it's used is as a requirement of elders in the church. There to be men of gentleness. And so this is meant clearly to be a reflection of a Christ-like character worked out in the heart before God and before your spouse. The beauty of marriage in so many ways of Christian marriage, is that you get a front row seat to Jesus forming his image in your spouse. Wives, you get a front row seat to seeing the character of Jesus worked out in your husband's life. Husbands, you have a front row seat to seeing the beauty of Jesus's character worked out in the life of your wife in a way that no one else can see the lie that's at the heart of much adultery, of unfaithfulness in our marriage, 
is the lie that someone else sees you more truly than yourself. Right? Some guy walks along who sees you as more beautiful and builds you up in some way that your husband doesn't. Some woman comes along and builds a man up and he begins to believe that he really is who she sees him to be, not who he feels like he is in the context of his marriage. And the lie in there, of course, is that you really are who the people closest to you know you to be. Right? I really am. Who my wife sees me more closely and more accurately than anyone else in the world. That's the most close picture of who I am. And so to those of you who are married, if that's true, if you are the one who has a front row seat to see the character of Jesus formed in your spouse, one of your main callings as a husband or as a wife is to celebrate and to call attention to the beauty of Christ in the life of your spouse. To celebrate beauty as you see it in your spouse. And beyond the superficial, beyond you look hot in that dress or you look handsome in that suit. Who else, let me ask you this, who else in your wife's life legitimately has the role of celebrating her beauty? Right? God has given you this role. Who else in your husband's life as the role of celebrating his beauty and his courage and his goodness. Right? God has given that to us. So much of our marriages are hidden. They're small acts of faithfulness, domestic acts of kindness, washing the dishes, walking the dog, putting away the laundry, opening the doors, caring for the kids. Celebrate Christ when you see it in love. Point out to your wife or to your husband. You look like Jesus when you serve in this way. Celebrate the life of Christ being formed in one another. Encourage it and cheer it on. This world has so many voices that tear us down, that point to who we aren't and how we fail. Be a voice for one another that celebrates the image of Jesus as it's formed in you. And then finally, in marriage, we reveal the depth of Jesus' love. We reveal the depth of Jesus' love. Verse 7, likewise, he now turns to husband. He only has a couple of verses of advice for husband. Um, I think this is deliberate. Uh, the average Roman household code would be addressed to the husband and to no one else. It would be advice for the husband about how he manages his family, his wife, his children, his servants. But here, Peter speaks mostly to the rest of the home and only tangentially to the husband. But he says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. What he's saying is, look, husbands, now again, I think, although it's a little less clear, I think he's still writing to a husband who finds himself married to a woman who doesn't believe. And so he's saying, look, she is in the vulnerable position. This woman is probably coming along with you to church. She's probably expected culturally to act as though she believes something that she doesn't yet believe. And so Peter's saying, husbands, even though culture doesn't demand of you that you bend over backwards for your wife, they put, the culture puts her in this vulnerable position. You should show her honor. You should acknowledge the vulnerability of her position. 
and seek to live with her, not in a domineering way, but in an understanding way. Foundational to the love between husband and wife in a marriage is a desire to understand one another, a desire to learn one another, a desire to get to know one another. There was an interview a number of years ago, Stephen Hawking, the great astrophysicist, uh, was on the Larry King live show. And Larry King asked Stephen Hawking, what is one thing you don't understand? And Hawking said, women. Uh, Larry King incidentally married eight times in his life. Uh, but even Stephen Hawking, this man who's co contemplated the depth of the universe, right, asked, what do you not understand? He said, women. Uh, this is essentially the plot of every sitcom that I grew up on as a kid, right? Husbands just don't understand women. Women just don't understand husbands. And hilarity ensues between our inability to understand one But look, friends, this is not a joke. Husbands, your unwillingness to learn and understand your wife, you're chalking up your differences to just being, well, women. Wives, you're, you're chalking up your husband's behavior to... <laughs> Well, you know how men are. This is a fundamental way, a violation of the way marriage is designed to be. Marriage is always intimacy in the midst of difference. That is the way God designed Christian marriage to work. Right? Even at the level of our biology, at the level of physical intimacy, marriage is about learning to love within the midst of difference. It's about giving our lives to one who is different than us. It's about learning to bridge the gap between two very different people. And that, friends, is how marriage, maybe above all, demonstrates the gospel to us. There is no gap. Whatever gap of understanding exists between husbands and wives pales in comparison to the gap between God and humanity. Creator and creature, perfectly holy and righteous, broken and sinful. And yet God took on himself the responsibility of bridging that gap because love means intimacy, union, across the divide of difference. And as we labor towards that end in our marriage, as we look at the difference between us, not just differences of gender, not just the difference of husband and wife, but the, the, the immense differences in personality and family of origin and views and opinions on things. As we work to understand one another, bridging that difference, we reveal the beauty of Jesus. Friends, the reason that the scriptures say that God hates divorce is not because it's never allowed. Scriptures do say that there's instances, as we've said, of abuse, and neglect, abandonment, in which divorce is, in a broken world, an option. But the reason that the Lord hates divorce is ultimately because it tells a lie about the way that he says the world is. He says that love wins, that love, there is a love that is so steady, so reliable, so tenacious, that it overcomes all sin, all division, all hatred, and all difference. The scriptures are a love story. The Bible ends in a marriage between Christ 
his bride. And our marriages reveal that love to one another as we together seek to reveal that love. Lord Jesus, help us, uh, especially those of us who are called to a life of marriage. Lord, help us to reveal the life of Jesus to one another, to reveal his truth and his grace and his love and his mercy and his tenderness. And together, help us, Lord, to reveal your love to a love-starved world. Lord, I know that our marriages struggle and suffer. I know that even now, there's marriages in our church that feel at odds. There's those of us who are stuck in difficult spots that we don't know how to navigate. There's those of us living uh, with the broken hope in the wake of divorce. And so, Lord, I do pray that you would instill your living hope in our hearts. That you would help us to place our hope in your love above all love. And, Lord, that you would help us to work out your grace, your hope, the mercy of others. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.